Hey friend, before we start the next episode, I want to let you in on something new. You see, the reason I started this podcast is to answer more deeply the question I get over and over again, which is, how did you start your business and can you help me launch mine? This podcast invites you behind the scenes on how to run a successful interior design business, but I want to go one step further and give you something invaluable, which is access to my proven blueprint to launching your own business. It's called the Design Business Accelerator Toolkit, linked in our show notes and on our website, lizlevininteriors.com. If you're serious about starting your interior design business, then this one's for you and it's launching soon. So go grab your spot. I want you to succeed like I did and like the many successful designers who have studied with me. If that sounds like something you wanna do, then we've got you covered. Okay, let's dive into our next episode. Ever thought about starting your own business as an interior designer? Join Liz Levin, nationally published design entrepreneur of 20 years, as she interviews experts, colleagues, and creatives to pull back the curtain on the design industry. Whether you're passionate about design, eager to start your design business, or simply curious about what happens behind the scenes, we're here to open the doors for you. Welcome to Behind the Drapery Podcast. Hello friends, welcome to Behind the Drapery, where we explore stories of inspiration and success in the world of interior design. I'm thrilled today to have my very good friend, Jason Clare joining us, a seasoned designer himself and Renaissance man in my opinion. Jason also holds a special place in my heart because he was my very first boss for my very first interior design job. Born in New York City, Jason was interested in art and design from the start. He became a commissioned abstract painter in high school and then triple majored in art, art history, and pre-med at Duke University. See, I told you he's a Renaissance man. Between 2003 and 2014, Jason opened and grew Vastu in Washington, D.C., becoming a leading modern furniture retailer, art gallery, and interior design firm. He then moved to Switzerland with his husband and traveled to 60 countries during the following five years. With a renewed passion and evolved design aesthetic, Jason returned to the U.S. in 2019 and started the interior design firm Interior Matter with a former colleague. Jason stepped back from Interior Matter in 2023 to focus on a new venture called Upon Return, a global travel advisory. He continues to be the creative director of Interior Matter's monthly design newsletter called What Matters. Well, welcome, Jason. Hi, Liz. Hi. I'm so glad you're here today. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's nice to see you. It's nice to see Uh, you too after so long. I know. We were getting into some fun things before we started, but um, I think we got to backtrack for folks that don't know you. I sort of think of you as a Renaissance man because you do a lot of different things, design and otherwise. I don't know if you still consider yourself that. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought, you know, to kick things off, you could share, you know, a bit about your journey into the world of design and sort of what sparked your interest and and how did you realize this was a career path that you wanted to pursue? We have to go way back here. <laughs> yeah, this is the way back machine. So yeah. um, let's see. I, for the longest period of time, wanted to be a plastic surgeon. What? And. I thought I'm even surprising you with the Wayback Machine. Yeah. And I thought um, this kind of interest as a kid in design and art and going to New York and going to museums and sort of being a painter myself at the time. And my dad sort of nugget in my brain that that was a difficult life and a difficult career. Anyway, I like had in my mind that plastic surgery was this unification of 
my creative side and my career side. And I pursued that through undergrad. Did you, your dad say that becoming an artist or a painter was going to be a difficult lifestyle versus plastic surgery? That's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. Like, I wonder, I mean, he, he um, passed away about 17 years ago, but I wonder if he would say the same thing today because medical world is sort of upside down from where it was when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties. Well, that's true. I was relating is when I wanted to get into photography and I had, I don't know if every girl has a photography stage in middle school. And my dad, I remember saying, you know, I think that's either going to be, you know, an expensive hobby or sort of a tough existence. And I thought, huh, you know, but I really, I kind of get at it through taking pictures of my work now, but I, I remember him saying that I took it to heart. Sounds like. Yeah. No, I I went through my photography phase also. (laughs) I think by then I sort of had teased out that, well, at least then that art was going to be an avocation. And this is when I was kind of, I guess, out of school, out of undergrad before I went to graduate school and living in Philadelphia. And I and I took photography classes and I wasn't sure where that was going to fit into my life. But anyway. I think that's a good point. I think a lot of creatives struggle with how do you make a career out of being creative? It seems like a difficult path, a hard way to make money. Maybe not so much now, as you said, you know, with things being more online and open and well, I think I think at the end of the day that for me at least the the idea that you have to think about these things separately became the thing I had to overcome. I lived in a world where I was thinking about career, you know, on the left and creative outlet on the right and they shall not cross kind of thing. I think that's kind of old school advice. I mean, I hate to sort of give advice in the way that people sometimes ask, because I feel like it's what you would do for yourself, not what you would say someone else should do. But I think that people should consider what they're passionate about. And I know that's kind of become a a bit of a cliche, but if you can't wake up every day sort of loving what you do, then it's, it's a hard life because you have to sort of reconcile like what you've chosen to make money, let's say, and what you've chosen to sort of how you how you choose to spend your evenings and weekends kind of right. thing. And I think the more that you can, these ideas can overlap, that's where sort of success and happiness lies. I would agree. It took me a while to find that path, though. I, I tried, you know, when I got out of college, I read that book, What Color Is Your Parachute? And I was trying to marry my, I took a lot of art classes and sculpture and Chinese calligraphy and every kind of, you know, pottery but, you know, again, my dad said, well, when's underwater basket weaving? Because I was <laughs> majoring in psychology and then getting this heavy minor in art because that's where my passion was. Yeah, I mean, similar. I have a similar story. I was I was an art history. Um, tr- I was a triple major. I was art history, pre-med and what they called studio art, which was actually the the physical making of yes. art. So it was a painting my favorite. Uh, major. But again, the the pre-med was like usurping all of the future planning. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of stopped all that. I decided that like second semester physics was just, you know, a bridge too far. <laughs> and I took a breath and I decided to like work and go into the workforce. And I went into healthcare um, consulting for about seven years before I got a master's in business. And then even after that, I went back into healthcare consulting. I mean, it was around 9-11 and like the economy was um, difficult. And so the idea of like doing something creative was sort of anathema to my thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah. And then I kind of had another crisis and and sort of a year later after being in the 
workforce again, uh, whatever that was, 2001, two is when someone approached me to um, help them uh, open a design retail store, furniture store, which I know you're familiar with. Oh, yes. I mentioned that in my first pilot episode as my first design gig, which now you are revealed. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of my first design gig in that way. Um, I was a, I was an artist selling my work, but I never, you know, I was, I hadn't done this before, but I had just finished business school. And so I knew something about the various components of starting a small business. And this just came out of the blue though. You're working, you're painting. And then he approached you to open this. I mean, how did that yeah, I was working and traveling a ton okay. for a consulting gig and wasn't really happy being on the road so much. And my friend who was writing a business plan for this business decided, hey, this business is a little bit bigger than a single operator. Mm -hmm. um, can you help me finish the business plan? And would you be interested in you know, going a little further? And I kind of woke up one day and I said, yeah, that's it. Wow. I'm going to quit my job. The The retail store happened to be two blocks from my house, which oh. was, you know, which wildly convenient for you. Wildly convenient. And, you know, changed a commute from, I think I was going to Dallas every week or something. I can't oh. remember. <laughs> Slightly uh, like, closer. Yeah. To, to being able to walk two blocks. And so all of it kind of gelled and came together. And I decided like, that was the thing I wanted to do. And my dad was, you know, was alive at the time and extremely supportive. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That was such a fun time too. I mean, I met you sort of, I guess, what was that year one or two when you guys had it opened? And I'm trying to think that was probably late 2003. We opened in April of 2000. And... No, no, I'm sorry. We opened, yeah, in April of 2003 ish. Does and everyone know the store name, Vastu? Vastu. <laughs> I mean, and this is also back in the day where, you know, I can't say that this is true today, where independent retailers could not only exist, but but be successful and be destinations and 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 not, you know, sort of our furniture and retail life was not focused around a catalog that someone would get in the mail. It was, it was unusual curation of various lines that at least at the time DC hadn't seen before. I remember that being a big selling point, you know, when I was working with you guys, it was, you know, the Steve Anthony, Stephen Anthony out in LA and all the different, I, we thought of it as like a mini design center where you two had curated a really interesting I don't want to say vendors, but like different artisans, furniture makers that, did, like you said, didn't exist in big box retailers. And people were looking for that. And I think, I mean, then it swung the other way. We're now across the street, our big box retailers, moving board and stuff, which have their place, of course. But gosh, it was such an evolution. I mean, back then, that was really like a special place, too, where that area, this was on 14th Street in D.C., where that whole area was was turning over and like interesting restaurants and stores and boutiques were opening up that were the antithesis of the big box retailers. What we realized um, soon after opening, I mean, we opened as a furniture retailer. We, that was we, the concept? I mean, like, what was the concept that he approached you with? Like, it's... We're going to curate lines that hadn't been sort of seen or sold in D.C. before. We were going into a warm, modern aesthetic, which is what we used to say. And we were doing things custom, which was unusual for a retail establishment. So it wasn't, you know, like... I mean, at the time, our sofas were available in like six six inch increments, and oh my gosh, yeah, you're taking me back! Yeah, I know, I know all the all the like uh, elevator speeches and and bullet points we used to um, 
uh, teach our staff and then and then communicate to the public. And so that was a, that was actually a hard sell because people were still used to you know the concept that you can only buy what's in a catalog or what you can see on the floor. But in fact, we were doing something different and custom. So, but at first we were just a you know just we were we were a retail furniture and store and an art gallery actually. I love um, that piece of it, the art gallery, uh, the local artists. I mean, that important. I realized that speaks to one of your. I didn't remember that you were also an artist. Yeah, and we we like to support the local artists, and we had an art sort of gallery manager who would change the shows every two months, and that would change the physical look of the store without having to invest heavily in changing furniture as often and, and swapping yeah. out our our showroom pieces. But That's then, you know, soon after opening, like I don't know, maybe that was a year. Like like to your point, 14th Street was evolving, and people were walking into the store with with um, floor plants. Mm. And can you help design my space? Cause I've never lived in a loft before or an open floor yes. plan environment. And so suddenly we realized, I mean, we were pretty quick in response, like mm -hmm. we need to build out a design team. I don't exactly remember how we met <laughs> you and me and oh, how it I all do. started, but like you were, you know, among our first designers who we hired um, to kind of manage a, a, a different way of selling. It wasn't about, just like random salespeople on the floor, you know, selling lamps and sofas, you had to be extremely knowledgeable about interior design and space and proportion and all these things that are, that are important. We really had to educate the customers coming in, which was different from going into a restoration hardware. I mean, I remember working in the holidays at restoration hardware. It was a totally different, you know, it was just a part-time gig when we were coming back from living abroad. And before I worked at Vastu and and I remember all, I learned so much about custom furniture because I was still very, very new. I was just right out of a couple courses in, in design school and so much about it was so great because people would come in and the exposure to different clients, uh, you know, I, I think we had like 30, a quarter or whatever. We do all these rooms like full. Then we branched out into, oh, we need window treatments or, oh, we need, you know, that's how I met my now, not now, my 20 year workroom partner was through Vastu and, and you guys. Yeah, initially, like, like we were like, oh God, window treatments and floor coverings, that sounds complicated. Let's, <laughs> let's, we'll take a pass at that. And then we realized, you know, not only was it helpful to our bottom line, but it was, um, we wanted to provide turnkey interior design service to clients walking in. And it was a little bit different than I'm sure where our conversation will head to a sort of traditional interior design firm. And so, yeah, we, 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 we just sort of, had all those vendors lined up to provide those services. And we had a very smart, educated staff of people um, like yourself to, to sell and provide design services. I think you were ahead of the curve on that because now everybody's a designer in every furniture shop, but I mean, maybe it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I think bringing custom furniture to customers, you know, retail customers was not common back then. And um, especially being able to have some design services built in. I mean, now we see it at a lot of places, but you guys were, I think were really early on that trend. Yeah. And we also felt like, look, if someone came in or maybe, a, you know, we noticed a pattern and let's say people are, were coming in looking for X, Y, or Z, and we didn't have a vendor for that. Right. Then my business partner and I would just go to some of the the shows in New York or North Carolina or out in California, or we even started going to Milan every year, and we would just find vendors to fill those voids. I mean, we were we were um, very flexible and and different than a room and board or a restoration where everything is 
sort of branded their own and they have to work Mm -hmm. with artisans to create a gazillion of them, we could buy four pieces from an Italian vendor to satisfy our clients' needs and call it part of Vastu. And I remember it was a big deal back then too, when you guys had built such a great brand around that warm modern that you were the first, I think, retailer to carry Knoll in DC. Was that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So that was, I mean, as a as a business person, that was super exciting. So Noel was the first. They came and approached us from New York. Wow. This was before they worked with Design Within Reach. This was before they had their own retail showrooms. They really were just branching into residential. I mean, they were focused on commercial, which was like 90% of the business and 10% residential. And they were um, choosing a retailer in every major market. And right. we were a very unusual choice for them um, because we carried virtually no other recognizably named brands. Right. And so we they loved the idea of, of folding Knoll into this warm, modern environment. And then we could highlight why Knoll pieces were iconic and the history. And it was just we loved it because it was another point of engagement with clients and with customers oh. coming in asking questions. I felt like and it was a perfect match to, with your, your aesthetic and, and the whole look of the store. It just dovetailed in so perfectly, you know? It was, it was, I mean, we did extremely well and we carried their whole textile line. And I think for a while we were the number one textiles reseller of Knoll really? Textile in the country because we were using it on everything. Oh, that's right. I love that everything. ring of fabric. I remember yeah. the projects. Yes. Oh God, that fabric wall, bane of my existence. <laughs> I remember one time talking about drapery and I was new to creating drapery. I think I used a super thick upholstery fabric with Gretchen and she had to fabricate this these super long panels. She's like, Liz, the seamstress's fingers are falling apart. Trying, you know, we we're hating you in the workroom, but you know, she did it anyway. It was some of that beautiful fabric from the fabric wall. Oh God, we had we were we were educating ourselves at the same time. I mean, we I remember once a designer came in and, and it would have been our responsibility to tell this designer that the fabric had to be backed. Oh, right. It was like Mid-backed, yes. stretching and, and on the bias and all this. And it was being used on a tight sofa. Anyway, it was a disaster. And you if know, you haven't made a mistake backing, then you're you're not, you haven't done enough work <laughs> yet. Everybody yeah, has exactly. to make a mistake on knit backing or exactly. not backing. Right. Oh, that's funny. So, so the store was doing well. And how many years? I'm trying to think back. I left after a couple of years and you guys kept rolling and, and crushing we, it. We yeah. were open through, I guess, let me think, part of 2014, I believe, is when we started to unwind our, yeah, 2014. I mean, but we we were, we then became like the exclusive Herman Miller dealer and Floss oh, Lighting. Man. I mean, personally, I had an opportunity with my husband to move to Europe. And so we so did jealous. that at the beginning of 2013 had made arrangements to sell a piece of the company and, and have a new operator and quickly fell apart. And so um, another learning experience to, right. to to sort of being an owner operator and running a fairly bespoke business, which was fantastic in, the, in a way to serve our clients, but difficult as, a, as business people to be able to replicate or train a new sort of new owners anyway. So we, we just, we just sort of quietly fulfilled all of our remaining orders and closed up. It was a dozen years or so. And it was amazing run. But, and I think what we're not mentioning too, is that entire 14th street corridor changed around you as well and became 
more commercial and the smaller, more boutique bespoke products, boutiques were, you know, it was hard to I, right stand up next to the Mitchell Gold room and boards that came in, which just meant you guys knew where to be and they were following, right? We were initially kind of afraid of that, frankly, because we didn't have um, very deep pockets. Um, but then we realized that we were actually part of a network effect of furniture businesses along the corridor. So people would come park and visit, you know, all five or 10 stores and not yeah. just have to like find us as a solo destination. Oh, but see. you're right. The the evolution of that neighborhood, I couldn't imagine being there. I mean, even in five years ago or 10 years ago, let alone today. I mean, every other store is now a bank wow. or a real estate firm or it's empty. The, the demand for rent is ridiculous and it's not matched with supply. So there are a lot of empty storefronts. So, I mean, I'm not saying that we couldn't have lasted another few years, but we, we would have had to move or really um, rethink the business completely. Starting your own business can be really daunting. I mean, we talked about some of the challenges you faced when starting out. I mean, was there any kind of like major thing you and your business partner had to overcome that I guess we touched on some of that, but I mean, you had such a successful business. Was there anything that, you know, you could share that would be a challenge that might folks starting their own business should be aware of advice for people starting their own business? Retail is very specific. I think it's harder than what, you know, working for yourself as an independent designer. I think something that would apply to both would mm. be to really invest in other people that you're hiring. So you could have a series of interviews go well. You can have a series of references go well. There is a mismatch in terms of cultural fit or, um, you know, by then you probably would have checked like aesthetic interest and make sure like things like that were aligned. Mm -hmm. But you end up investing so much time in people's training and, um, you know, you really want the team to function uh, as well as it can all together. I mean, we used to sort of say things like, I mean, back when we were a smaller team that, you know, we may have had four people, but we functioned like we had six because there was such like energy and yes. like exponential growth from a team that's really well oiled. So I think that that applies both for a small interior design firm or a retailer or any small business that you really, it's, it's, it, you know, it has to be beyond warm bodies. Like mm -hmm. a lot of retailers, sure. Like a warm body to like press this button and do that thing or whatever. That's what some retailers demand and that's fine. But we were kind of a high touch business where you're, conversational skills, how to be excellent and the way you engage or the way you read others. Some people do not want to engage rather than something to overcome. It's something that we really invested in and it worked most of the time, but you know, not always. What well, sort of trial and error? I mean, you've done both. You've run a retail business and then as you said, you moved abroad and then you came back and re-entered the design world in a totally different capacity with a different business, but still had a tie to Vastu in a way with your partner, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that sure. transition? And I'm jealous about Switzerland and was <laughs> super jealous of the time. <laughs> I loved living in Switzerland. Yes. Um, that was about five years and then came back and I was a little like, 
I actually didn't know what I was going to do for about the first year. And it wasn't until after that first year of, of re-entry into the United States that I realized I wanted to be back in design. It was what I was good at. It's what I knew. Our a former employee at Vastu who really ran the interior design group for the longest period of time until we closed was out on her own um, in an interior design firm in DC. I just felt like I could add value to what she was already doing and help grow what she was already doing. And we, she kind of unwound her business and we joined forces and we started a new interior design firm about 2018, the beginning of January 1st, 2018. Because one of the things you did at Vastu, I think that sort of came naturally to you was at least towards the middle of the end is you were great about networking with the realtors in the area and sort of, and also I think getting into more corporate projects, right? Wasn't that, weren't there some relationships that I think you were able to bring to this next relationship in business with the new venture? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought like, I mean, where my juices sort of flow. I mean, I, yes, I'm I'm interested in, in the aesthetics and the design, but I also absolutely love business development and the networking, the strategizing on how to make something grow more than just sort of by word of mouth one at a time. And so we had established at Vastu a lot of relationships with, with realtors because they were the first people to know when new people were coming to, to Metro DC needing design services. I mean, there was no other person who knew in advance, you know, who was coming. Who was coming. So, so we really courted them. Um, we provided all kinds of realtor settlement gift services to make their lives easier. We hosted different networking events and they in turn brought us clients who were really in need. And then, and then we used to say that we, which was true, it wasn't just a line that we were furthering their service. So if a realtor like ends his or her service at the closing transaction, but then we were seamlessly like introduced we were continuing that person's service and providing the excellence that 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 realtor would demand. That experience uh, continued. I, yes, I, I think realtors exactly. reach out for that. If, if people are asking them, hey, I need a little help setting this house up or this condo, they can then seamlessly hand you off to an aligned partner. Yes. Exactly. And then, and then at the same time, we sometimes found out when clients were moving out of DC because we had done someone's house or their condo or whatever. And they would, you know, we, we maintained relationships with our, with our bigger and better clients. And we still had the retail operations and people would come in and say hello all the time. And yeah. sometimes we were the first person to find out like, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking of upgrading or, 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 or downsizing, or I'm leaving the, the market and we would refer realtors to those folks. So it, it was kind of like a, a nice kind of networking cycle. It was reciprocated, right? It kind of closed the loop on that. And exactly. so when you talk about business development for helping start the new business with your new design partner, was your focus, what did you bring to her business or your joint venture that you said business development? So what did that look like day to day? What roles did you have? Um, yeah. If she was the day to day designer, you were doing business development and, and how, how can people learn how to, you know, do what you do. Yes. Did. So I had to, because I was kind of like off, not off the grid, but I was out of the country for five <laughs> you years. You were off the grid. <laughs> I didn't maintain those relationships um, while I was gone. I had no idea that I was going to get back into design when I came back. I kind of, you know, re-engaged with realtor friends, with builders and architects. Mm -hmm. um, we had a thinking in the beginning that if we could 
um, find architectural firms that did not offer interior design services. And if there was a good fit in culture and aesthetic that we could be the kind of like the white label firm for XYZ architecture that ended up not really working so oh. well. And we can, we could, we could talk about that, but, yeah, but why, but, why didn't it work out? Um, I think what we determined is that even for the architects that didn't uh, provide formal interior design services, they still wanted like approval or disapproval of anything going in or out of the house. Yeah. So your baby, um, even, even if the clients themselves were like, okay, I'm need a new sofa, they would run it by the architect. Yeah. So there was like a, a level of ownership still, and we didn't want to step on toes and any, but, but the, the positive side of that is that that networking still helped, right? Because sometimes a client would come to an architecture firm and the, the client would actually really need really intensive interior design services, not full-on architectural services. So, <laughs> so we were referred a few times by architects. Um, I got back to networking with the realtors. I scoured to find out who the, I mean, we were a pretty luxury firm. So I was scouring to find out who the luxury home builders were, mm-hmm. how clients were making interior design decisions with, with them. Some of our largest contracts were um, kind of in that space. You know, I firmly believe, and I think you would you would agree, Liz, that clients benefit from interior design services when building a new home because they don't make the mistakes that they may make without that firm's presence. Yes. So not only are there fewer mistakes and fewer regrets, but there's there's added value and the end product is something that is just beyond what their initial expectations were usually. I think people or consumers can be confused on that. I've been brought in on projects where here's the builder, here's the architect and Liz, where, when do we bring you in? And is this the right time? Is it at the end? Is it the beginning? And I've done it a lot of different ways, depending on the client's budget. I know you have too. It's, it, I think the best method is when they bring us in early to your point, like then, you know, the selections haven't been made or they're aren't, they're not doing it themselves and having to backtrack because everybody, I used to think in the beginning, I was intimidated those early ones. I thought, okay, what do I, here's an architect. I'm not that, I don't know everything about building. I sort of felt a little sheepish about being in these official meetings with the client, but then I quickly learned that we all have a different specialty and, you know, I'm thinking about furniture and color and trim and, and a different, and the architect is not, he's thinking about the framework of it, obviously a different discipline entirely. And when everybody's there together and having those conversations, the client benefits from hearing us share ideas and, and they feel more confident in their decision-making where they're not saying, oh, well, Liz said this, let me run back to the architect and see how that goes. And it's the first time they've ever done this, built a house usually. And it's, it's confusing and the choices are overwhelming. And not everyone understands how to do that, bring people in. I, maybe we need to be better about educating folks on that process. I think it's a really, really important point. If you're about to spend, you know, in the metro DC area, some yeah. you know seven figure plus plus number on a new home, not that you're trusting the architect and the builder on every decision, but you're right. Like everyone has a separate set of, of skills and their, what they're focused on and what they're good at. And so we, you know, this one project I'm thinking of, we had a seat at the table from the very beginning, the client had the budget for it, but I would also say that we had an effect on the architectural drawings. So as we were sort of thinking about furniture placement and lighting and the artwork and sort of the function of the space, we moved walls. I mean, the the architectural plans weren't done. We ended up from the drawings, moving walls, 
changing positions of rooms and doing a whole bunch of things that I don't think would have been done if we did not have a seat at the table. And in the end, the client was ecstatic that we were providing this value. And so like to my point earlier about sort of exponential results from a successful team, I mean, you could sort of say like the builder is an important person at that table, obviously the architect, the designer. And so I'd say the three people are actually creating the benefit of like four at the table. Like there's like an extra ghost of a person there who's putting all this stuff together. And in the end, the client benefits. And I think it's also more efficient. I mean, having all these separate meetings or having them in not at the same time meeting with, you know, getting the house and the architectural plans together and then talking to your designer about furniture and all that. If you can have those meetings together, even though you're paying three people to be at the table, you're doing it once and not over and over again. And like you said, oftentimes we'll inform some of those decisions around architectural changes and wall placement and, you know, things in the bathroom and just around the functionality of of the person who's living there. And as a woman, I've been in those rooms where the architect and the builder are both men and the client is a woman. And she said to me, one of them said, I'm just glad we're on this team. You know, we have men and women have different perspectives on certain things, (laughs) obviously. So I'm sort of her teammate, you know, design advocate on the female side of things. A hundred percent. Could not agree with that more. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there. (laughs) Uh, who wants to build a house? <laughs> who wants to build a house? I love, I love it. I think it's so fun seeing it. I mean, it took a while to get to building a house with, with folks. You know, you start out taking anything and everything that comes your way. Oh yeah, like, I don't mean to say like this was like we we started the business. <laughs> this was our first project. We did rooms, we did whole floors, then we did sort of you know minor renovation work. We did some kitchens, and then we started getting bigger, bigger projects. Yes. They sort of like a snowball rolling down the mountain kind of thing. Exactly. I'm thinking about working with clients. I mean, we've had a lot of positive interactions, but I always like to ask, um, were there any particular challenges or disagreements with clients in the past that um, you could offer some advice on? Or how do you have, you know, do you have an approach of finding a middle ground when things go sideways? Like if you and the client or you and the architect have different visions and you feel strongly about it or... Yeah, I think that's an stories, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an important question. I think it's I'm going to take it in two parts, I think. The first, giving yourself the permission to say no to a potential client. Oh, that's I think that's a good I one. think we had that at Vastu when not at the beginning for an interior design project. I mean, forget about a new build, which is, you know, a multi-year project. For right. I don't know, a typical interior design project you're kind of working with that client for, I don't know, six months minimum, probably a year or longer, the more extensive it is. It is. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to get along with that person well throughout that duration. And it's not that you're going to be a yes person or a no person, or you're, you're just, you need to get along with that person. You're in this kind of marriage for chemistry. A while. Chemistry, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I think. And so- at Vastu, I can't remember the story exactly, but we had something go sideways. We had a meeting about it. We decided that it was a project that we probably shouldn't have taken in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of opened up this idea that it's okay to say no. It doesn't happen often, but if you have really bad chemistry or there are red flags that go up in your first meeting or two, then it is okay to refer that person to someone else. I would never leave anyone hanging. 
Right. So we've, we had this at Vastu and we certainly had this at the uh, design firm after, and we would refer that project out to someone who was better suited for it. Um, so what that's for those red flags. Like, are there some genuine general red flags that if they appear for you that you just know, I mean, it takes a while to discover. I think you have to go through a kind of awkward experience with a client to go, oh, wait, all right. I mean, how can you know without experience? Look, I don't think you can, you can necessarily do this right out of the gate, but you are kind of dating in the first couple of meetings mm -hmm. and you're usually seeing the space or seeing a set of plans. If it's a new space, you're discussing aesthetic, you're discussing budget, like the, the nasty word that has to be in the first meeting for oh, sure. And nobody likes that, that to the end. Nope. And you're, you know, eventually discussing a contract. And I think red, you know, there are red flags that can appear in those first few meetings. I mean, we had one that I'm thinking of. It's hard to say, like, I won't work with an attorney in Washington, D.C. because like every other person is an attorney. All of my clients however, are attorneys. <laughs> however, I mean, um, we did have an attorney client who picked apart our contract that had been oh, no. tried and true, written by our lawyer, you know, signed by numerous clients before and picked it apart and wanted to make, you know, a gazillion changes. And um, for reasons... Uh, beyond my control we took the project anyway and oh boy. um we ended up having to stop it prematurely there was like sort of a mutual agreement that it wasn't um going well and we what happened what was the straw that broke the camel's back was it a related to the agreement or sale? no 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 it was related to the project and to be honest at that point i was really behind the scenes and i was doing business development marketing um, and I was not the front person designer. So yeah. I don't remember exactly what went wrong from a design standpoint, but you know, we ended up departing very well. And we kind of handed over a final deliverable of like, for your next designer, this is the plan that should be executed. And that client agreed that that was a fabulous way to end it. But, you know, in hindsight, I would have said like anyone who is redlining a contract to that extent, big red flag, no pun intended. You know, if someone says like, I want to do the primary bedroom and bathroom and this, da, 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 and I have $10,000 and you can't go over. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there are designers who can do it for that and they have the resources and capability, but that wasn't where we were. That's why budget is a, such an important thing to talk about and, and someone's willingness to go over budget and sort of their capacity to go over budget. Once you start taking down walls, you know, yeah. You find mysteries and be able to, you know, have a slush fund to be able to cope with those changes. With those things. Yeah. I would agree with the contract. I always think of it as uh, an opportunity for people to ask questions, not change my business structure. And I, I agree with you. It's a major red flag when clients will say, Hey, I'd like to pay you this way, or I think sales should structure that way. It's like, well, you know, you don't walk into somebody's business and tell them how to operate it. That's setting the tone for the rest of the relationship. And if they're telling you how to do it, well, that's just going to end badly because that's the role you've set up in the beginning. So it's, but I, I like the contract as a way, Hey, please look at it and let's discuss things that you're either questioning or would like to redline because, you know, we don't want to get in bed with each other <laughs> and down the road. When you say I have $5 to spend in my living room and I want to buy it wholesale myself, well then we're just wasting everybody's time, you know? 
Agreed. I agree. I don't want to forget my my second thought on the second oh, part yes. of the question, but I but I totally agree. And and I think I don't know how this happened, but interior design has become or or was this industry where people felt like they could negotiate and they yes. could sort of run over the folks operating and say, no, 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 I'm only comfortable doing it this way. What we used to say at Vastu, which again, we were working with the the retail public. So we got all kinds of interesting folks, crazy questions, um, different than a design firm where you can filter out during the vetting process. And um, we couldn't lock the door because we didn't, you know, like someone coming in. Hey. And um, we used to say to people who were like on the fence about whether to hire us to do interior design, um, like if you outsource your taxes to an accountant, mm -hmm. if you, um, you know, outsource your legal services to an attorney, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Washington, D.C., Metro Washington, D.C. is a great market because people, I think, really understand what they're good at and what they're not good at. And they understand and, outsourcing. And they understand outsourcing. <laughs> <Very> so, <well. laughs> right. And so when someone starts to which is great. So like that gets you like in the door mm -hmm. um, if people buy into that kind of philosophy. And then if someone starts really pushing hard on like, well, I can get this for $5 less if I do a Google search or the, or whatever, 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 like those are the red flags that um, again, during the dating period. During the, the, the second yes. part of your question, which was sort of about um, like what happens if you're like long down the road of being involved in a project and it starts to go sideways. I mean, I think that honesty is, you know, like you have to be honest with your clients. Agreed. Yeah. The, the firm made an improper order and mm -hmm. we ordered it in the wrong finish and it took six months to get. I am terribly sorry. We will discount the the reorder, you know, whatever. Like we we sent people to dinner, we sent gifts. It's not that we made, you know, tons of mistakes all the time, but mistakes happen. And you can pretty much guarantee, especially in a new build, that there are going to be numerous mistakes. There are too many parties involved yes. uh, for that not to happen. And and we kind of warn clients up front, or warned, I'm not in the business anymore, um, <laughs> that time. this could happen. And, you know, we are prepared to be honest and we are prepared to take responsibility when it's our fault. And if it's not our fault, but it's, if it's the fault of one of our vendors, we're going to go to bat for you, our client to that vendor and have it replaced for free or discounted or expedited or whatever is in our power to do. I think that's so, super important to make people feel at ease up front. In the beginning, I used to be nervous about admitting that people make human error or there might be a mistake. And years down the road, I finally learned to say, hey, when and if a mistake happens, we've got your back. Like you said, we'll take care of it. We'll do everything within our power, given our vendor relationship. I think that's absolutely right. I think, And I think if you vetted the client properly and they sort of passed the test, and there were no flat red flags in the beginning that the client will also be very reasonable. Like if you if you're right. treating each other with respect and as adults and you're being transparent and not hiding delays or not spackling over problems or what have you, then when you need to have that honest conversation about like, look, I know this thing took six months to get and it was a custom this or that and it's going to take another six months to get now. Um, but we're going to do this, this, and this to remedy the situation there. It, it's a much easier conversation than if you were afraid of approaching or hiding things 
all and I think people come from bad. There's so many different types of decorators and designers out there, you know, running their businesses differently. And there's no standardization, which maybe invites, as you said, that uh, questioning of or challenging of negotiating our prices and business structure because we're not as unified as a, I don't know. I mean, it's an industry. It, it, people operate differently. People have come to me and said, I had a bad experience with designer X. And I'll ask, tell me what went wrong, what went well, so that I don't replicate whatever was bad in your pre previous experience. Exactly. And I think it's something that we probably should talk about. Maybe, you know, you're going to have other guests who will address this. But for us, the biggest hang up was always how do you charge? Do you pass along your discount to trade only resources to the client and therefore charge more hourly? Or do you mix it up and charge a little bit more than trade on the product and less hourly? In my second firm, we did a lot of research on this. We tested our model and modified it in a, in a few different ways. And what we felt worked best in Washington, DC, not in New York, and I will give you an, a New York example, yeah. is um, a mixture of these two revenue sources. And we're very honest with clients. We were very honest with clients about this. <laughs> we charged less than retail if there was a MSRP or if the product was available to the retail public, we always charged retail or less. Mm -hmm. And we charged what we thought was a reasonable hourly rate for the service that was being provided. So we had maybe four different levels of sort of skill sets in our office and four different hourly rates. And we would say that we would push the task at hand to the most qualified person on the staff who charged the least oh. to respect the client's budget. I mean, if, if something could be done by a non-principal and only charge the client $125 an hour versus $275 or whatever, that, mm -hmm. that's what we would do. Clients would always push back on the discount structure and the product, the product discount structure that is. And what we said, which is true, is that if we charged, if we passed the entire discount onto our clients, we would have to almost double our hourly rates. Oh and when you start looking at an interior design firm charging $500 or $600 an hour for principals, then you're getting into the territory of small uh, legal firms and people like have a, um, a difficult time squaring that. And so right. that's why we as a firm decided to, to do it the way that we did it, this sort of hybrid way. I have friends who are designers in New York. I'd say their clients are, you know, as wealthy as our DC clients, more or less, who always marked up retail. Everything was plus whatever, 15 or No matter 20. what. So if you're buying no a retail what. store, you're adding something on top. Exactly. Because Even if they could get it themselves, not a trade resource. Exactly. You're providing a service, you're inspecting it, you're receiving it, whatever. And they were charging like ludicrous amounts of money um, oh. per hour. So we did our research and we said like, this is what the A plus markets are doing. We don't feel like, we don't feel comfortable with that ethically. We want to be transparent. And and so anyway, the point is that whatever your model is, designers who are listening, be yes. confident in explaining why your model is what it is and how you've tested it. And don't allow clients to sort of push you this way or that way to change it because you've decided on this model, it's working for you and you have to stick by it. And it's your business. I mean, yeah. it is a business, period. It's not a volunteer project. And I think because of the nature of the relationship 
with your clients. It is a friendly and intimate relationship. You're in people's bedrooms and closets and getting to know their family and partners and everybody else. And then I've had moments where they'll say, oh, I thought you'd want me to get the best deal because we're buddies or, you know, and it's, yes, I want you to have the best outcome. And also I'm a business that has a staff and an office and all the things. I stopped calling it a designer discount. I call it a commission because that's truly what I see it as being. <clears throat> we are outside salespeople for these furniture vendors. And my client may buy a sofa once every 10 years, but I'm buying a dozen sofas every month, month after month, year after year. That's a sales commission. I'm an outside salesperson. And I'm we as designers have tried and tested all of these products and get up on my soapbox about this because it's it's frustrating when people come to you and say, oh, I want the discount. I just want to pay you for your time. I mean, the research on this has shown that if you only bill for your time, you're leaving so much money on the table and you can't charge enough to make up for it. It's not reasonable for your client. I also like to educate folks, look, if I'm charging for my time and also getting a commission from the vendors, I'm really getting that commission in between the retail price they would get access to on their own and what the vendor is willing to give me. They're not actually paying more than they would if they weren't working with a designer. And that's exactly. different. And that way I'm not unfairly motivated in either direction. I'm not billing every single second if I you know quickly fire off a text or to make up for the furniture sales that I'm not getting, or I'm selling stuff they don't need because I'm not getting compensated for my time. I think it's a fair approach. I think that's how most people I know in my peer group charge for their services. I think that's a hundred percent right. I mean, I can only say that that's a, you know, to my knowledge, that's a hundred percent right for the Metro DC market. It, it, different markets definitely operate differently, yeah. but yeah, that's what worked for us also. And again, it's another potential red flag early in the process. The more transparent you can be about that upfront, mm -hmm. you'll, you'll suss out whether someone's like, oh, well, I know if I Google that product and I'm like, well, I'm probably not going to say yes to this project, but I'm also going to make the point. If we Googled every product to try to find something that was $10 less or hundred dollars less, you'd be paying more for our time to do that than just paying the price that our vendor provides it at. So, you know, again, red flag, yeah. one of those people. And that's changed a lot too. I mean, we're talking about 2003 when I met you in the store, people were not, you know, comparison shopping online. You couldn't find trade furniture online. And we actually had to adjust our contract at some point and say, you know, when you work with us, you agree not to shop it. If we've spent the time to look for it, we've tested it out in other projects and present it to you. This is a service we've provided not to just grab the commission and run it's tricky because I can see the client side of them saying, well, I paid you for your time to design it. Now let me run off with it. But it's a whole package, right? We've, I can find it quickly because I've been looking for furniture for 20 years and yeah. I need to earn that commission to keep my staff as robust who can email you all the time and give the service that we want to provide. And it, and it has changed. I mean, and we had written that into our contract also about comparison shopping, by the way. I do think that the future will be different. Like I think it is... It is an odd industry mm. and maybe the last industry where there's this like hidden price from the public and the delta between that and sort of what you decide to charge as a, as a designer is like the commission, as you're saying, mm. and totally justifiable. But it is sort of like the last bastion of, an of I mean, people even know how much a car costs now. I mean, you know, 
Tesla doesn't negotiate. They, everyone pays the same amount. And, you know, people know what the landed price of a car is. And um, I suppose like home building, anything custom would be not as transparent, but I do think it'll change. I, I, I think that this like hidden pricing is not something that's sustainable. And I think the the dynamic of an interior design firm and the way that designers make money will also change, but there will be, you know, it's not going to be like tomorrow it's going to be different. You know, AI is not going to change this or something. And there'll be an evolution just like there has been over the last 20 years since, you know, internet shopping. Internet shopping. I know it is, it's constantly changing. And now designers are trying to think about alternate revenue streams and because it's, you need to flesh out working one-on-one or sorry, you have to add to like the one-on-one service you provide isn't always going to feed everybody on your team. And there's other ways to add to either e-design or affiliate sales and stuff like that. It's, it is evolving all the time. One question I have for you is what's your favorite part of being a design entrepreneur? Do you love certain aspects of it? I know you've walked away from it by choice, but you've tried so many different avenues and had so many interesting experiences. Is there a favorite part of it for you? I mean, I really liked certain trade shows. I felt they were really special and I got to see what was coming up like in the next year or years in terms of products. And so my favorite really was um, Salone in Milan. I mean, I'm like a snob, but it is really <laughs> the best, most comprehensive trade show I'd ever seen in the world. I mean, it is it is you know millions of square feet of space in this wow. gorgeous, like a feast uh, for the senses kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, from kitchens and bathrooms to lighting to furniture, you know, all in Milan. So it's like, and then the and then the. Um, Salone, the name of the show, that show takes over the whole city. So those brands who have showrooms already in Milan tend to do their, you know, have their uh, folks come to their showrooms and there's parties and there's, it's just pretty fabulous. I do like ICFF in New York. It's much smaller, but it's, it's super cool. I, yeah, I stepped back from, from it all. And I focus on my own personal love of design and, you know, changing things in our house or helping some friends here and there, but, um, keep your hand. You are a Renaissance man. I mean, I know <laughs> with your art and your design, you're now embarking on another project as a serial entrepreneur. Yes. Yeah, so I am sort of very, very passionate about travel and have been for really my entire adult life ever since I could, you know, afford to take my first trip. And so over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, I've been kind of amassing um, lists of restaurants and hotels and galleries and cities where I have really enjoyed my time. And friends of mine and friends of friends have been coming to me for a couple of decades asking for, you know, my lists for Amsterdam or my list for Copenhagen or wherever. And so I've been doing that gladly for um, a number of years. And my I've, I've teased out what I like about it is that I like when someone comes home and they've had an experience similar to what I've had at, a, at said place. 
They're like, oh my God, I totally get it, Jason, why you liked this restaurant or that hotel or whatever. And that just puts a smile on my face because I, I like sharing those experiences, even if that person's not with me on the trip. So what I've decided to do finally is to get these lists out of my phone, which is where they've been residing, <laughs> organized by country and by city, into a website um, with why I'm recommending each one. And I have about 3,000 that I'm starting with globally. Wow. Um, the name of the company is Upon Return. Love it. Upon Return. Upon Return, which um, kind of has a dual meaning, either like upon return back to that same restaurant oh, yeah. um, to conjure up the memories and the flavors or whatever of your first time there, or upon return home mm -hmm. uh, from a trip when you might want to share stories with your friends or significant other or families or what have you and plan your next trip. And so... Right it. now, it's going to be a subscription-based system, and I hope to launch it in early 2024. Oh, my gosh. I want to sign up. <laughs> like my personal <laughs> goop, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I've been, like, triangulating all these places for so long and, like, not taking one source as the gospel. So if I've done all the triangulation of, like, the research, I just feel like there's value in in putting it out there for people who don't have the time. I mean, speaking about people who outsource and who don't have the time to scour the internet yes. to like understand whether this restaurant res review is actually the one they should pay attention to or this one. And so. There is so much out there. It is hard. It's daunting when you think about planning a trip and trying to suss out which recommendations are worth pursuing or not and to have an expert you trust wrap it up in a nice bow and say here you go here's what you must do in this city but i also yeah. see a common thread throughout your experiences in creating a nice experience for someone else so you're saying how people feel when they come home from the trip if they experience the things you love so much where you were and i see that relating to the design designer experience as well and how you would create spaces for people to enjoy at home it's it's sort of a common thread of service in a way creative service. I love it. I'm, I'm hiring you for PR. Oh, thank <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think I am a sharer and I like it just, like I said, it puts a smile on my face when someone, I don't need the adulation. That's not what this is about. I just like when someone has his or her own experience, whether that's in a space that I've helped design or in a restaurant that I'm recommending, um, they love it for the same reasons. So this isn't, you know, this is, this is not for everyone. This is, you know, I will describe who I am and what I look for. And I'm hoping that there's a big market of people who agree in principle with, you know, the things that I like. And it's good to niche down. I think when you can be that specific and really talk to the person that relates to your story and your experiences and wants that, I think that makes it more effective opposed to trying to please yeah, everyone and be exactly. everyone. It's just too confusing and it's not going to hit the nail on the head, you know? Exactly. Uh, I think that's, that's true of any small business. I yeah. think you really have to, I think going back to one of your original questions, in addition to sort of hiring good people and investing in good people, it's understanding your market. Mm -hmm. It is okay not to have everything for everyone. You are an expert in these areas, and that means you're going to service whatever, 5% of the potential marketplace really, really well. Trying to take over the whole pie and say, like, I'm going to be a designer for everyone. I mean, that's just probably not going to work. 
not going to work. And I think there's a temptation to try to do that in the beginning when you're hungry for work and clients and I'll take anybody and everyone. I can do it. I used to say that I, I yep. can do primary yep. colors. I could do you right. know things right. that, and now I educate clients. Look, if you're going to hire an architect, a builder, a designer, make sure you really love the images you're seeing on their portfolio. And then you don't have to struggle in the decision-making you trust that what they are naturally inclined to pull and, and are drawn to in design is going to resonate with what you love. And then you're just sort of tweaking it, not trying to put a square peg in a round hole, you know, exactly. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. We had so much fun at Vastu. I mean, uh, we could talk for three hours about all kinds of war stories and adventures in the store and I mean, just literally people walking off the street. Like you said, you couldn't shut the door. You couldn't filter out your client. There we were. Okay, you need a sofa? What else goes with it? Here's your floor plan and Johnny on the spot. Here we are like tap dancing all day long. I learned so much from that experience. It really gave me a head start in, you know, working for myself eventually, I have to say. Oh. Yeah, I mean, look, we were all in it together. And, and I think we were carefully and strategically, but making it up as we went. I mean, we, yeah. you know... I can remember my the the business plan for that. We knew what we needed to sell to break even more or less. And I was thinking like, oh my God, can we really sell three $4,000 sofas a month? That seems unattainable. And so, you know, looking back at the business plans, again, anyone listening to this, write a business plan. Um, Call Jason. <laughs> for your business. Uh, now it's like hilarious because we, you know, we blew those targets out of the water, you know, almost in the first year, I think. So, um, but anyway, that was a lot of fun. It's, it would be, um, there, are, there are lots of stories there. <laughs> And I hear Ultra Suede might be making a comeback. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, serious? <laughs> no, I just think we had Ultra Suede all day long. This was everywhere. That's true. Everywhere, a rainbow of Ultra Suede. Totally blocked that out. Oh my gosh. Um, well, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, you shared so many valuable insights and experiences. Um, your journey will undoubtedly inspire somebody starting out. I hope. I know it did me. That's very sweet. It's, thank you for having me. It's great to see you. I love what you do. And thank you for doing this podcast. Oh, thank you. All right, friend. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapery, where we pull back the curtain on the interior design industry through stories, insights, and creative processes that shape the spaces we create. Make sure you subscribe to get the latest episodes from your favorite podcast platform. And visit our website at lizlevininteriors.com for more information.